0: My name is Robert Santos. I am the director of the U.S. Census Bureau, and I am your director. So I say that a lot because I really mean it. I see this role as a public service role. So I serve you just as I serve Congress, and I serve the president, and I serve communities all over the U.S. Um, That's what I'm bringing to this particular position and that's why I'm here to speak to you today. Not just to uh, talk some data geek stuff on data quality, but also to provide a more common understanding of the strengths and limitations of the census data that we collect. So, um, good afternoon. I'm gonna talk about how good uh, do Census Bureau statistics need to be. Um, so. You know, we're gonna have a little bit of fun. I'm gonna tell a few stories and uh, maybe, hopefully, you'll come away with a little bit of a different perspective on the data that we collectively as a nation rely on for everyday policy and, uh, and development of all sorts. I'll be talking today about three things. The first topic of all things is perfection. Uh, The second topic is data quality. What does it mean? And then the last one focuses on the answer to that question. Okay? But before I begin, I just have to acknowledge two groups of people. The first is my family. (laughs) I have have my, my wife Adela, my son Emilio, my Granddaughter, <laughs> Renee, and my daughter, Clarissa. So um, their support means everything to me. I wouldn't be here without them. Love you to death, thank you. But you know what? I have a second family, a second familia. It's the South by Southwest photo crew, woo! <laughs> thank you guys for being here. I served on the photo crew for the that's a small fraction of them, I'm in the middle. Um, uh, that, so I served on the crew for eight years, and um, it, it, let me tell you, the experience working with this collection of folks has been nothing short of transformational. Um, you guys helped me grow my mojo. You guys helped me nurture and embrace my creativity in everything that I do and you guys taught me the value of just being myself, which is, think about it, <laughs> that's profound. Uh, you know, my leadership as Census Bureau Director was influenced by my experiences with Photo crew over the years, and I tell everyone at the Bureau and even beyond in public that they need to bring their whole selves to the table to be effective at anything they do, be it professional or otherwise. So thank you, my fellow Photogs, Uh, and on with the show. Remember, I'm the MC, so I took care of a little business, now we're going on to the show. Uh, Let's geek out and talk a little bit about census data quality. But first, let me give you a little bit of context, okay? Boom. Um, In case you missed it, the Census Bureau is our nation's largest Federal Statistical Agency. We have over 13,000 staff, and just under a million square feet of office space at our headquarters. Besides maintaining six regional offices, a national processing center, a contact center, and spread all over the, the nation. We generate trillions upon trillions of data points and statistics each year both on our wonderfully diverse population and our wonderfully diverse economy. We conduct three censuses, population, governments, economy with businesses. We conduct over 130 surveys annually covering our population and our businesses. And on any given day of the year, we have multiple surveys active in the field. We have people call in, knocking on doors uh, and so forth. Hey, I was at a place of business in Austin uh, earlier this week and the owner came up to me and they said, I received a letter from you. I said, what? He said, yeah, it had your signature on it and they were asking me to complete the economic census. Well, I'm still getting used to folks coming up and telling me that. <laughs> Um, but, you know, our economic census, it's a pretty amazing uh, work of art as far as data's concerned, and it's still active, by the way. So if you're, any of you are business people, and you got a letter with my name on it, <laughs> please complete it as soon as possible. <laughs> uh, in, any, in any case, uh, our data collections cover a huge array of topics. Um, Now, I'm not gonna go through all the topical areas, we'd be here all day, Uh, but let's just say that our footprint includes many important aspects of our society. Uh, We cover things like housing, education, families, employment, commuting to work, economic indicators like supply chain, broadband access, emergency planning, and much, much more, but at the core, of all of the data we produce is an attribute we call quality. Our mission is to produce quality data on our nation's people and economy. But what exactly does data quality mean? Well, that's what I'm here to talk about. And there's no better way to start than by talking about perfection. So, what is perfect? Hey, in my world, the world of statistical data, we'd absolutely love for our data to be flawless. That means no errors, no irregularities, it all makes sense, just utter perfection. But as we all know, perfection is in the eye of the beholder. So let's consider, just for the For the sake of illustration, let's consider, and for the sake of my granddaughter, uh, let's consider this picture of a snowflake. It's just an ice crystal. But check out how each of the six legs stretches out beautifully. The shape is symmetrical. The dimensions are pretty uniform. If that isn't perfection, it's pretty close, huh? Alas, if you take a closer look, you'll easily spot imperfections. Here's a close-up of the stems. Now, if you you can see that one side of a stem is not really the mirror image of the other. Just pick one of those two that are sticking out. Uh, Perhaps if that snowflake had been created in a vacuum, the crystal would be perfect, but in real life, Things like humidity and how cold it is really affect the formation. That's partly why no two snowflakes are ever alike. Perfection escapes us, although I'd like to think of the crystal as perfectly beautiful. Okay, I know you're thinking this. How on earth does this relate to statistical data? Well, let's go there. I'd like to start with Uh, what some might think is a profound statement, even though it really isn't if you think about it. Okay, be, be prepared now. I don't want to burst any bubbles. No census ever conducted in our great nation's history has ever been perfect. Okay? In fact, no survey ever conducted by the Census Bureau or any federal statistical agency has ever been perfect. In fact, uh, this is true of all surveys, private or governmental. Imperfections always exist. Yes, we do strive for perfection and we do advance that ball down down the field, but achieving uh, perfection is simply impossible. And you know what? That's okay. Like the magic of our perfectly beautiful snowflake, the statistical data that we diligently procure and curate provide much insight, much knowledge. In fact, knowing the strengths and limitations of the data actually increases their value because you know what to take advantage of and you know where to watch out. Hey, we make decisions all the time using imperfect data, right? So, navigation tools. They don't always tell you which roads are closed. Folks choose restaurants based on flawed ratings on the internet. You buy a used car, what do you do? You look for the quirks as quickly as you can so that you can learn how to enjoy the ride without getting really annoyed. Well, the same principles apply to data. Ta-da. Our statistical data does not have to be perfect in order to be useful. And that's always been the case. But if our statistical products can't be perfect, then how should they be characterized? Aha. That brings us to the concept of data quality, a topic that I'm particularly enamored with. Like the notion of perfection, data quality can mean so many things to so many people. You know, I like to compare the concept of data quality to music. It seems appropriate for South by, right? So let's go down that rabbit hole a little bit. (laughs) Boom. Contemplate music for a second. What is it about music that you like? Some folks, they're attracted to the beat. Others dig the melody. Some like the instrumentation. Still, others find the lyrics and the phrasing of the vocalist simply captivating. And then there are others. They appreciate the composition, how all the elements fit together, how the music is produced to create a single piece of artistic majesty. Now, I've been a live live music photographer for a while. I've pretty much seen it all. Uh, The rappers, hip hop, hard rock, metal, indie, blues, jazz, K-pop, folk, classical, you name it. And in their own way, each is magnificent. But to really appreciate music, it needs to speak to you. And depending on your needs, you seek different music to find comfort or to find joy or whatever your needs happen to be. If you're happy and you want to party, there's music for that. If you're melancholy, there are songs that provide solace. And if you just need some background music because you're working or having a meal, there's a playlist for that too. Well, guess what? The concept of combining musical components to identify music that fits your personal needs, that applies exactly to data quality components and statistical data. So let me show you how. So there's a framework that the Federal Committee on Statistical Methodology published in 2020. It's appropriately titled a framework for data quality. It lays out three dimensions or three domains to data quality, utility, objectivity, and integrity. These are our musical components, so to speak. So I'm gonna describe each. Utility relates to how well the data address one's needs. How useful is it for what you're trying to do? Obviously, needs can change from one person to the next or from one problem you're addressing to the next. And you know what? Utility isn't uniform. It varies by your purpose, by your objective. So for example, we often visit the hill country. It's pretty rocky and hard to get around out there. I wouldn't take a Lamborghini out there because it would be absolutely useless to navigate the wilderness. I'd rather have my four-wheel drive pickup. It's made for off-road travel and it fits my need to, to navigate the terrain. But if I needed speed on a smooth highway, then yes, that sports car would be sweet and meet those needs. And the same principle applies to data utility. So we have something called the Current Population Study and it provides absolutely wonderful monthly estimates of unemployment that come out, they drive our economy. Uh, And it does so at the national, at the state level. Our nation relies heavily on the economic indicators from that survey. But the data can't support estimates of smaller geography like counties, rural counties, neighborhoods and cities, and cities. On the other hand, we have our flagship survey, the American Community Survey, which we call the ACS. Besides providing high-precision national and state estimates, our five-year ACS data products provide useful estimates down to the census tract level and even to the block group level. And it does so for a variety of socioeconomic uh, indicators or topics, things like poverty, poverty, disability, education levels, home ownership, household income, and so forth. And that's why I consider ACS to be a national treasure. It's used in most of our policy making in this country. And it needs to be gold standard. So that was utility. Now let's turn to objectivity. Uh, It reflects accuracy, reliability, and error structure. Many folks, especially us statisticians, we like to focus on this domain a lot, and maybe too much when you're thinking about data quality. Um, we're all familiar with things like margins of error in polling, right? We watch the news or read the newspaper type of thing. Well, we use them at the Census Bureau as well. And it's a classic statistical tool. Here's some um, some examples, exact, you know, the, the little ranges, the confidence intervals in that table, they show the natural variation of a statistic based on using a sample of population instead of a census. We statisticians take comfort in being able to control the size of that variation by picking how large the sample should be or designing the sample in a very specific way. Another component of objectivity is that of bias. Oh, nefarious bias. So, um, here's an example of what that looks like. Bias refers to systematic error or shifts in a measure that you don't often know about. To give you an idea of bias, let's think about here in Texas. We love our SUVs and, and trucks, right? Now, if we're driving down the road and we uh, take our hands off the steering wheel, you wanna be going straight, right? But Sometimes you take your hands, not that I recommend it, you take your hands off the steering wheel and you start going a little bit to the right or a little bit to the left, and so you have to keep your hands on to make sure you go straight. Well, that signifies a bias in the alignment of your tires. It's a systematic error that needs correction. Uh, Unfortunately, when it comes to statistical data, we don't have the luxury of taking our hands off the steering wheel to see if we go one way or the other. We know those imperfections exist in our data, as they do with all data. And we do our best to minimize them. We do that with a lot of research, and then we develop ways to anticipate and correct for the bias in our data. As you might expect, there are also many other sources of bias, like people not understanding the meanings of the question or deciding they don't wanna tell you the truth and tell you something else. Um, Participants may or may may be or may not be different than those that do not participate, and that's called non-response bias. The graph on the screen here reveals the bias in household earnings in the ACS in the year of the pandemic, 2020. The bias is revealed by the gap between the two lines and on the left hand side they're close together, that's 2019, on the right hand side it's 2020 and that shows that when when we take a look at things there was was a bias in, uh, in some of the data we collected. So that's bias and let's move on to the final domain, integrity. Now the concept of integrity reflects the scientific rigor used in gathering and processing the data. It gets at how thoroughly the design and methods were thought through. If I do a survey of adults in Texas using only English language questionnaires, it's gonna be impossible to talk about all Texans. Why? Because over one in three speak a language other than English at home. And if that survey also happens to be only online, well, one in eight households in Texas doesn't have broadband access. So that would have an impact on the scientific integrity of the study. By the way, integrity also includes within it protections against manipulation, influence, unauthorized access of confidential data, and so forth. So there's a bit to unpack with this one domain, um, but that's what data quality is. Now at its core, integrity is about how well the research infrastructure was built. If the roof of your new house, say, isn't built well, It doesn't matter how well the rest of the house is built, you're gonna get a roof leak and you're gonna get water damage. Okay, so those are the three domains, uh, utility, objectivity, and uh, integrity. Now, please notice that there are dimensions underneath those domains. Now, I'm not gonna read through all of them. Uh, Instead, I'd like to hone in on one of those dimensions. The first one on the left under utility and it's uh, and it's called relevance. Uh, the other ones are accessibility, timeliness, punctuality, and granularity. Now relevance is defined pretty much as the word suggests. It's the extent to which data meet a user's needs in a meaningful way. Like most things in life, relevance can mean different things to different people. On top of that, Relevance is situational to what you are using the data for. For instance, last year I traveled uh, to Alaska and addressed the Alaska Federation of Nations uh, at an annual gathering of all tribes and villages in that state. Some tribal leaders came to me and they said they needed better data for their governance specifically for their planning and housing and education and health they spoke about how uh, one of the surveys you know, we would literally fly people out to the to the village t- to go and do uh, interviews they spoke about how for one of those surveys they were asked about employment are you employed and what are your monthly earnings um, and it just didn't they don't capture the sustenance work that's actually being performed in the remote villages. Asking for monthly income or hours worked is just meaningless when you live in a remote village and you need to fish or hunt to sustain your village and your residents and your way of life. The absence of a meaningful data for, for those people clearly reflects a cultural relevance gap from the tribe's perspective. Now, take macroeconomists. Well, from their perspective, the failure to capture sustenance work uh, in remote Alaska villages has absolutely no bearing on their analyses of the nation's economy. So let's take a look at this a a bit more broadly. For about the past decade, I've gone around speaking about a renaissance that's unfolding before our eyes as a result of technological advancement and globalization. It has fundamentally changed society and our culture. We're now data-driven. We increasingly rely on immediate, easy access to information. In fact, we expect to be catered to by way of tailoring algorithms based on our internet use. Sound familiar, right? <laughs> this renaissance also features cultural changes. With it the ever-increasing use of social media, a new wave of virtual communities has sprung up that connects families and friends and even strangers with shared interests. More and more people have smartphone access and they use social media apps to connect with each other. Technological advances in genealogical research and DNA testing amplified interest in people knowing who they are and and their composition according to racial, ethnic, and cultural lines. Our nation's population is becoming more diverse, including mixed race, mixed ethnicity, and mixed race ethnicity. We recognize the diversity within racial and ethnic groups. Sexual orientation and gender identity is also recognized as an important part of who we are as a nation now. And then there's our economy. As it evolves, so do aspects of our work, such as telework, remote work, or the classic office work, and manufacturing jobs in, in their work locations. New industries are emerging, for instance. The cannabis industry (laughs) with a slew of new products. And then there are the crypto industry, currency industries. Hey, even the term work has taken a bit of a more complex meaning in this new renaissance. Sure, we still have folks working regular hours with salaried monthly and biweekly paychecks, but a sizable chunk of our workforce can only make ends meet by working multiple jobs, or doing gig work, or some combination. Here in Austin, many of my beloved photog family uh, often hold multiple jobs just so that they can passionately pursue their gig work in photography. Same is true of musicians and other artists here in Austin and elsewhere. This is all important context when thinking about data quality for our federal statistical system. Our data need to be culturally relevant. They need to be relevant to our contemporary society. Yes, we pride ourselves in gold standard data programs like the American Community Survey, the Current Population Survey, our three censuses, the many other data collections that we do, but as society evolves and does so rapidly, the relevance of data items we collect will be affected over time, and not necessarily in a good way. And that will affect their relevance, a key dimension of utility. Now to be clear, the federal statistical agencies do adapt to our change in society. So there's something called a contingent worker supplement in the CPS, or current Population Survey. It picks up a little bit, but not quite very much of gig work. Questions on computer and internet use were actually introduced to the ACS back in 2013, almost 20 years after they came into use. Hey, the question on whether a house has a flushing toilet was finally removed from the ACS in 2016. And of course, the 1997 standards for collecting and reporting race ethnicity are currently being uh, revisited and revised by the Office of Management and Budget. So change does occur. The issue is the extent to which societal changes outpacing revisions in our data uh, collections. It seems to me like we're getting further behind. There There are, however, some shining examples of quick adaptation. It relates to the data quality dimension of timeliness, which I skipped over earlier when I read the list. But it's worth mentioning here. Early in the lockdown period of the pandemic, the federal statistical system realized there were no contemporaneous data available to tell the story of how we the people in our nation were coping with COVID the ACS our flagship gold you know gold standard survey was of little use because it takes 9 months to f- between finishing data collection and publishing the data cuz it's so enormous and takes so much time to process so a collaboration was formed with other federal statistical agencies to create something called the household pulse survey It featured a quick turnaround of national surveys focused on how the pandemic affected households socially and economically. The first survey was launched in April 2020 and conducted bi-weekly. The survey program actually continues to this day. As an online survey with a really low response rate, you data geeks know that's a red flag for quality, the quality threshold of the Household Pulse Survey was well below that of our flagship studies. In fact, the product was even labeled experimental. Yet the information still provided valuable, contemporaneous glimpses into how the nation was dealing with that pandemic on an ongoing basis. It was looking at trends rather than points. It was the right data product for the right time in our history. It aligned with the public's appetite to know what's going on right now during a profound and vulnerable time in our country's history. I'll note, by the way, that there's a similar sister survey uh, of establishments called the Small Business Pulse Survey uh, and it served the same p- purpose for businesses. Okay. I've talked about data quality in the context of data utility, specifically the dimension of data relevance, and I've sprinkled in a little bit of a few comments on timeliness. So, where does this all leave us? How good do Census Bureau statistics need to be? Well, first, let's recognize that data can be collected that are highly accurate, reliable, and demonstrate little bias. Yet, they can end up having little relevance, or their relevance can. Sim- quickly diminish with time. And because of the risk of diminishing relevance, people in my line of business need an ongoing content review baked into our statistical programs. We need to do reality checks all the time. And if you hadn't realized it yet, this is also an issue of equity. Think about it, for instance, Collection of job and income data is easiest for those fortunate enough to get a monthly or weekly paycheck. But among those less fortunate folks who do gig work and episodic work, it's really difficult to provide accurate employment and income data when you're involved in those types of episodic events that generate income. These are the folks we need to know about the most. Unfortunately, they end up being the least accurately measured. Unless we're willing to explore better ways to capture data from those segments of society, an inequity will exist in data quality across subpopulations. That's why we need to continuously assess the relevance of the data elements. Okay, I've avoided it long enough let me directly answer the question posed in my session title. How good do Census Bureau statistics need to be? The answer truly is, it
1: depends.
0: (laughs) It depends on the specific questions that society needs to, to answer, and at what geographic levels, and what level of detail are needed. For instance, our US Constitution calls for a decennial census for the distinct purpose of congressional apportionment. Those 50 numbers, those 50 counts, one per state, must be as accurate as possible. Our many survey programs each require a different balance between quality domains of utility, objectivity, and integrity. Flagship surveys like ACS They need a little bit shift more precise to more precise measures, smaller margins of error at low levels of geography, and uh, they will require a heavier focus on the domains of objectivity and integrity, and less so on timeliness. On the other hand, our high frequency survey programs, like I just talked about, the Pulse Survey, they sacrifice objectivity to bolster timeliness so that we can get an idea contemporaneously of what how things are trending. Yet all of our data products contribute to our knowledge base. They all benefit the public and they respond to different needs. Just like our music metaphors, there are different combinations of med- melody, lyrics, beat that can meet your personal needs. And maybe that brings us full circle to perfection. Although not perfect, our statistical data can be perfectly helpful. You just need to use the right mix of quality domains to identify the data that best suit your needs. So to all my census data uh, nerds out there, I implore you, the next time you need a problem or an issue addressed with data, think about the combination of data dimensions that will best fit your particular needs. Almost certainly, there'll be a stat for that. And to my photog family, (laughs) if y'all are out here in music tonight, think about what mix of musical elements best fits your personal needs of the moment. And then on your night off, and I know there's only one, Uh, go out there and find the band and venue that fit that need. Uh, and with that, I say thank you, everyone. How are we doing on time? Uh, okay, we we still have time. So now, as the MC, I'm putting on a different hat. Uh, we're entering the Ask Me Anything portion of our program. <laughs> so if anybody has any questions on literally anything. Um, more than happy to, to answer.
2: Hi. Um, I am a huge census fan. Um, you guys have an amazing set of data. I think a lot of people here are weird fans of uh, U.S. Census data, so thank you for the work you do. Sure. Um, I had a question um, a few years ago. I, um, as a data visualization designer, was working on a project that was kind of investigating U.S. Census data um, and celebrating the 2020 U.S. Census. Um, and One of the things that I learned through that process was how the U.S. census has been used sometimes negatively throughout history, specifically for redlining Mm -hmm. um, and kind of other, you know, racist uh, intentions throughout history. So I'm curious. Um, And because of that, some groups are skeptical and reluctant to be recorded by U.S. census. Um, And that tends to be usually our most vulnerable groups who, in one sense, need to Mm -hmm. be counted, but also have very valid reasons for not wanting to be counted. So I wonder if you have any insight on how um, you're approaching and trying to, you know, meet these groups where they're at, gain their trust, or, um, and then secondly, like how can you help ensure that the U.S. Census is used for good going forward? I mean, there's always this risk of nefarious purposes being used with this data. So I would love your thoughts on that.
0: Oh, sure. Thank you very much. I'll I'll start with the first. Prior to my uh, appointment uh, and nomination, I did a lot of work on census data, and I was very well aware of trust issues associated with that. And so as a focus of uh, my leadership at the Census Bureau this first year, and it's now, it's gonna be throughout my term, I have a five-year term, Uh, I am looking to connect with the public We need a human face on the Census Bureau and we need human faces on the Census Bureau. So uh, I'm choosing to lead by example. I'm going out, meeting with stakeholders, meeting with partners, meeting with HBCUs and minority-serving institutions as well as big-time R1 universities talking to students and faculty, talking about the value of census data, and then going into communities and talking to pastors and community-based organization leaders and trying to, and listening, it's not like I'm talking at you, it's like here I am, uh, let me understand your data needs, uh, what, what you're trying to do with your communities, and let me understand the sources of uh, the tension and mistrust and I, uh, I'm basically opening doors uh, and instead of waiting every, um, say, you know, a big gap, waiting until the eight year, because every census is in a zero year, instead of waiting for every eight year and saying, it's census time again, let's uh, start our partnership programs. We need a continuous relationship yeah. and that means constant outreach it means expanding our networks instead of, not instead of, but in addition to the 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 usual parties, so to speak, um, and using that gap in between censuses to do two things. One is to uh, emphasize the importance of ongoing studies that are going on every day, because there's a, v- a huge number of incredible and in policy importance, um, as well as, uh, creating data tools based on communicated user needs and then showing and demonstrating the tangible value of the data that's being collected. Um, We're also looking to infuse into that uh, sort of like the children are our features thing. So get more involved with schools so that we figure if we can get the kids excited about statistics and data and the Census Bureau, then when they talk to their parents, there might be a little bit more trust generated that way as well. So we're doing a combination of things. Now, you also mentioned, it was quite a packed question. (laughs) Uh, You mentioned uh, the, the nefarious uses of the census data. We have zero control over how people interpret or misinterpret the data that we put out. Our obligation is to make sure that they are quality products, that they meet certain thresholds, and that people understand the strengths and limitations of the data. Uh, And that's exactly what we're doing. Uh, We, uh, and I think it's a good policy, do not uh, consider ourselves to be uh, like census data police, to go and say this is not a good use of census data. We provide guidance like, you know, uh, on our, some of our Census 2020 products. We say don't go do something called small block analysis. Go to all the smallest blocks. Pull them together and say what's going on with block? Because there's a lot of noise in that stuff. Um, So we do our part, uh, but we don't, we don't go looking for, uh, looking for uh, bad uses. We actually, we rely on our stakeholders to do that. Thank you so much. Thanks. It actually, I'll keep talking a little bit while the next person comes up. It it reminds me that one of the themes for this year was our realization from the the pandemic and the 2020 census that there is no way in this day and age that a federal statistical community like the agency, like the Census Bureau, can do its mission alone. We need a community of the whole approach. We're only as good as the communities uh, permit in terms of helping to generate the data and benefiting from the data. Because it's, no, it, it's such a, uh, an unequal uh, mismatch to think that all communities do is help the Census Bureau collect data. Uh-uh-uh, it needs to be the other way around first. We help communities with our data and then communities realize the value and help us to, to do better. Yes, sir.
2: Thank you very much for the presentation. It was really good. Um, My question is about mobility and like transportation. Mm -hmm. Do you do census uh, studies also on that? The means for mobility, EV adoption, that sort of thing?
0: Yes, we do. Uh, First of all, there is a wonderful uh, Department of Transportation uh, Federal Highway uh, study called the National Household Travel Survey that I was involved with. We have the former project director here. My wife Adela oversaw that uh, a few years ago. Um, So that's strictly the origin destination for a large random sample uh, of of people across the country. Uh, What the Census Bureau does, in our aspect, is that in the American Community Survey, we track uh, commuting, origin destination for commuting, uh, and we even do uh, some economic analysis for job flows so that you know if you live in one state and you cross over the border into another state to go to work we track that as well. We have a product called leHD let's see if I can remember it one uh, no I can't it's leHD but it's a it's a database that that provides all of the community uh, information. Uh, and for analysis in that way. And there's also a visual so that you can look at it visually, too. Okay,
3: super. Thank you, Thank you very much. Hi. Um,
2: so coming out of the pandemic, we've seen a lot of population movement, uh,
0: between
2: uh, urban areas to rural areas, et cetera, et cetera. How are, how are you all sort of looking at the data, computer data, when it was captured relative to population movements from the
0: uh, well, how did we look at it? Uh, there, you know, what we do is point-in-time surveys, so it's wherever the people are now. Um, the big challenge for 2020 was that when the lockdown occurred, there was a huge population shift at the time. Uh, I can even, you know, speak for myself. You know. Uh, I and, and my wife were living in Austin. Uh, our uh, daughter and grandkid were living in another city in another state and they moved over during the, the height of the, uh, during the initial uncertain part of the uh, pandemic uh, just because no one knew the nature of the beast. I mean, it was really, really scary. That happened a lot in college towns. You had the students leaving their dormitories, leaving their off-campus housing to go stay stay at home and it happened right at the time of census day april 1st so uh we went through a variety of mechanisms we used administrative data we actually did a boatload of phone calls <laughs> to to universities and such and despite running up with uh to against barriers like ferpa the the law that protects you know uh against uh, Universities and uh, educational institutions from divulging uh, information about students. Despite that, we were still able to get s- some decent information, so that we could go through our quality checks uh, and determine that the data were sufficient in order to release uh, the 50 numbers for a portion. Sure. So, the, um, if that typically we use we use the census data,
2: we use the census data that's collected once over many
3: number of years following that for multiple reasons.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: As you're pointing out, there's a fair amount of movement. Mm-hmm. Do you have any concern about the representativeness of
0: that data over time as it sort of has because that I mean, uh, so Yeah, I, 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 actually I, I don't. And the reason I don't is because we have something that I think you'd be familiar with called the Annual Population yeah. Estimates Program. It's- So the annual population estimates program works where in the zero year when there's a census, that's the base population, and then the next year, we come up with an estimate of the total population by state, by county, by city, race, ethnicity, age, group, sex, and the way we do it is by using administrative data to get births, deaths, and migrations. And we have those sources of information that we collect from states and other places, And um, and that establishes it takes into account those shifts in population because we keep track of them each year. So uh, we're I'm fairly confident that we have pretty good data on an annual basis um, uh, from our annual population surveys uh, in order to to account for whatever mobility there might be in that way. Sure.
1: Director, thank you for Hi. the wonderful presentation. Uh, my name is Julie, and I'm coming from DC. I also work
0: DC. Cool.
1: I also work for the federal government, and
0: um, oh, which agency, by the way?
1: Office of Management and Budget. OMB. In your
0: I give kudos to OMB. Yes. <laughs> <you for> <laughs>
1: I, um, so I mentioned I work for the federal government, and actually, my first foot in the door for government was I was an enumerator for the 2010 census. And for those that don't know, uh, the enumerators uh, go door to door, they're the frontline workers that try to capture any of the people that may have forgotten to submit their survey um, online or however else. And my question for you was. Um, if you might be able to share a little bit of your vision for the 2030 census, or kind of what we might be able to expect with the 2030 mm-hmm.
0: census. Well, thank okay. you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. So, uh, if you if you noticed, part of what I talked about was um, going was rethinking about uh, rethinking census from the perspective of we need to do more outreach and and community of the whole is the way to achieve good things down the road. So I foresee a 2030 census that features several things and you can already see it in action. Um, the first of which is that outreach and engagement, the two-way flow of information. We just finished a period where we requested uh, for a 30-day period in November um, through a federal register, notice that you'll be, you know what that means, not many of us, But um, we requested the public to give commentary on their vision, our ideas, wild and crazy ideas for a 2030 census. We received over 8,000 comments. We're in the process of going through those in terms of developing our our plan, operational plan, for uh, 2030. We're also, as a bureau, involved in a transformation and modernization initiative, which literally flips the paradigm of data collection and statistical data on its head uh, from one of a transactional type of data collection, federal statistical system where we do surveys and censuses and we go in and we knock on doors and we say, please give me some data, to one where we ingest from various sources high quality administrative records from the Social Security, from the Internal Revenue Service, from education, from, you know, CMS, uh, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, that types of things, as well as whatever other data we can get from states and such. And then we start assessing, okay, where are the gaps? So, you know, no one would ever do a census with just administrative records because the, there's huge segments of, of vulnerable populations that are, don't have good administrative data. So the idea is to, and looking forward to 2030, um to start thinking about how we can use administrative data to reduce the burden of collecting information on the easiest to count, which is a large portion of the US population. If you do that, you then reserve, you can harvest savings that you can then use to do a paradigm shift on the gaps. You identify the gaps, what are the the subpopulations, what are the communities that uh, historically have been hard to count, and you have more resources then to do culturally relevant, targeted, um, community-engaged efforts to those local communities. Uh, So that's sort of the, the direction that we're starting to go.
3: Hi, thanks for your talk. Um, I'm coming from an initiative called the Global Partnership for Sustainable Development Data, um, which is a large multi-stakeholder network, and many of our partners are governments around the world, and particularly the statistical agencies who are your counterparts in Africa, Latin America, Europe, Mm -hmm. Asia. And some of those governments are experimenting. You just spoke really elegantly about ingesting administrative data from so many places to reduce respondent mm-hmm. burden and not just fill gaps with respect to the census, but I imagine also produce data between the two 10-year marks. I'm wondering if you can also speak to what other data sources, particularly held by private companies, that you might be looking at leveraging. So some governments around the world are using data from mobile network operators, of course, call detail records, et cetera, for mobility and other Mm -hmm. use cases. Um, Some are looking at um, banking financial institution data to calculate CPI and other economic indicators. Um, But of course, then that raises up a lot of challenges with respect to legal and governance questions um, and maintaining public trust when you engage with those private sector entities. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what experimenting you're doing here, and how you're grappling with some of those challenging questions. Uh,
0: certainly. Our, uh, our philosophy is uh, not to restrict our um, exploration of any particular data sets. So we are looking and are open to contemplating private uh uh, private sources of administrative data, including mobility data, like data from cell phones and such, they are a little bit tricky because if, in their truest forms, you get coordinates for where people are, that is the height of <laughs> disclosure. So it's it's kind of like, yeah, we can ingest it, but we can't give it out, <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, but maybe you can use it in other ways, like, um, I gave this example just a, a, a few days ago. Uh, if one were able to access mobility data like that and you found that um, f- uh, for the last month there is a cell phone that ended up during the day away from a particular data uh, geographic point and then at night it was always there, that suggests that that housing unit is occupied. <laughs> And so, rather than declaring it vacant, which we might otherwise, because nobody answers the door, we would know that it is occupied, and we can either send somebody there in a way that hopefully they would respond, the people would respond, or we can have find some other way to enumerate those those types of situations. So we're leaving open the possibility. The one thing that um, we want to make sure that we don't do is become over reliant on private. Uh, data, privately held data. And the reason is because if we did that, then you, we're one IPO or CEO change or board of director change from not having the data anymore. And there goes a key economic indicator, that type of thing. So um, it's it's something we got to delicately balance, but we're um, our philosophy is let's let's look at everything and then allow the process to 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 play through. Let's let's weigh the, the different pros and cons. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Santos, thank yes, you for your talk today. Um, and it's good to see a fellow Texan in the in such a esteemed
0: position. <laughs> <laughs> Yahoo. Maybe I should say Yahoo. Yahua. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> I worked on the 2010 be counted census campaign with both the Latino and rock the vote. Excellent. It was one of the most powerful pieces of, camp- of campaign work I've ever done, work in the advertising industry. Uh, You mentioned that the ACS was like the gold standard, right? Like do we in the advertising, I want to partner with you you as an individual, maybe perhaps the agency I work with. Like do we need to build campaigns for ACS or should we start looking forward to 2030 and the census campaign? How can we build a coalition of, uh, you mentioned Uh, culturally targeted, so I want to, you know, be sure that, you know, uh, in my industry.
0: we're, We're looking to expand our partnerships. Our partnerships, we want them to be evergreen that there's no end and no beginning. It's just a continuation where we strengthen and work better together. Uh, so all you have to do is contact us. Uh, there's a person over here. Maybe I can, Eileen, my senior advisor. <laughs> if, if you guys connect, uh, we can provide information. And any of you, if you are with organizations, we do corporate partnerships as well as uh, community-based partnerships. And by the way, uh, this is something I tell all audiences and I'm gonna tell you. It's because of my outreach efforts, I sincerely want to meet every one of you if you want to to be met. Uh, And otherwise, I'm on LinkedIn, link up with me. I very much want to have connections to real people rather than bureaucrats type things. That's just me. Yes? I have a different
2: question, sorry. I'm a journalist from Israel Uh, in the Big Data area. Why do we need all the summaries? How does it change the way you're working? Okay, why do we need what? Summaries. You have all the data. You can take it from uh, companies. You can take it from the Internet. Why do you have to ask people?
0: Uh, We we have to ask people because not all companies will provide the information we we need. Uh, Not all states will provide information that we need. States, This is we live in a republic, not a democracy, folks. <laughs> the states rule, <laughs> and we ask states for their SNAP data, for their, you know, we, we're lucky to get births and deaths, but we get them because we get them through the state demographers. <laughs> uh, and so, so it's, it's a challenge to, to do that. Each one of those entities requires a separate agreement between the government and the entity. Think about all those renewals, those agreements. Now, yeah, we can have a standard form, but the other thing is, they only last five years, <laughs> and so every five years, all of them would have to be redone too. So, you know, we're we're kind of suffering under our own bureaucracy that we need to solve. Uh, but we're thinking big. We have the Evidence Act, which is creating a national data service, and part of that is simplifying the paperwork. So we're looking we're looking to the, a brighter future than that. <laughs> Yes?
2: I hope you don't mind a dumb question.
0: (laughs) There are no dumb questions.
2: You will be surprised. Um, I am not a data nerd. I'm a fan of data. But my only knowledge really of the census is watching a West Wing episode where they were considering using a formula instead of enumerators, and I was curious if that was a real conversation or like, sorry, but that's I, I was actually curious because they, you know. Anyway.
0: Okay, so unfortunately, people were going out the door, so I didn't hear your question. <laughs> uh, sorry.
2: sorry, there's a West Wing episode where in the show, they're mm-hmm. considering whether they should use a formula to calculate the number of people for the census rather than actually enumerating.
0: Oh, them. okay, yeah.
2: Is that a real question that can be asked, or is that...
0: Was that uh, it, it's, it's absolutely any real question can be asked. The, um, the, the ultimate uh, decider in all of this is our US Constitution which requires an enumeration of the population every 10 years, which means if we were ever gonna do anything else, it would require a constitutional amendment. Yes, sir. Hi, um, just real quick. Uh, during the last census, there was a lot of controversy around counting citizens and non-citizens, right? Okay, can you speak a little more about that? Yep. During the last census, there was some controversy around counting citizens and non-citizens, yes. mm-hmm. right? And as I understand it, that resulted in putting on hold some of the CVAP uh, reports, and that had some that made doing analysis of uh, like uh,
2: redistricting for at the local level more difficult, mm-hmm. particularly like election precincts and things like that. Um, I think there's a new CVAP report that recently was produced, but I think that's at the block group level. Is there going to be, do you know, is there going to be at the block level CVAP data available in the future?
0: Uh, the quick answer is I don't know, oh. but I can, I can oh, get sorry. back to you. <laughs> yeah. But, I, yeah, I know about the CVAP population and such. So uh-huh. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Other questions? You guys were awesome. Thank you so much.